Let me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Let's pray. Father, you do deserve the glory, and we want to acknowledge that throughout the course of our gathering. Work your work in us by your word and your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. There's a movie entitled The Pursuit of Happiness, portraying the life of a man, Chris Gardner, and his son, Christopher. It starts with Chris as a salesman. He spent his entire life savings, he and his wife, on these bone density scanners that he would sell to uh, medical professionals. And as the movie unfolds, it, it is very apparent that it is a tough business to become successful at. And through the course of the failing attempts, you can see conflict building between he and his wife. You can see the desperation increasing uh, in his situation. And one day as he's going from one meeting to the next, he sees a red Ferrari pull up and park. And the guy gets out and he has this interesting conversation, essentially saying, I want to know what you do for a living essentially because I want to do what you do. And so the, the man points over to the building and says he's uh, a stockbroker. So it becomes his endeavor to become a stockbroker so he can fulfill the American dream. He looks around and says, look at all these people. They look so happy. They look so happy. And he he's, goes on this pursuit. He wins for himself a seat as an intern. It's a non-paid internship, and uh, that kind of put his wife over the edge, and she, she bolted. She took off for New York. And so here he is trying to make it on his own with his son, and it's a very interesting story. During this six-month internship, he studied. He worked for free. He tried to sell his uh, bone density scanners he moved in and out of hotels, homeless shelters, even uh, in bathrooms of train stations with his son. The story, of course, gets you rooting for Chris and his son, wanting him to be successful, wanting things to turn for him. Finally, the end of the film comes, and Chris gets a job as a stockbroker. He reached his goal. The closing, which is the rest of the story, speaks of the success that resulted. He made his first million by age 34. Very interesting. It portrays, at least in Hollywood ways, what happened to a real man. Because it's a, a film based upon a true story. A man named Christopher Gardner. And the moral of the story is work hard and you can achieve your dreams. And it happened. It happened in real life for him. And it does happen at other times. But we have to remember that this is proverbial wisdom when we, when we see those things. That's proverbial wisdom. In other words, hard work pays off. It's true. If you study for a test, you'll do better than if you don't study. Work hard at a job, you'll do better than if you don't work hard. In Chris Gardner's story, the only one... Um, uh, it became a success. But is, is Chris Gardner's story the only one that, uh, that 
demonstrate someone trying to get out of a desperate situation? Are there other stories that are similar with a different result? Are there others who don't meet the right person at the right time? Uh, Those that don't get the break that they need so that they can crawl out of a desperate situation. You see, while proverbial wisdom is good and necessary, there are always parts of this life that fall outside of proverbial wisdom. And Solomon, in the book of Ecclesiastes, addresses a number of these cases. Things that fall outside of the proverbial wisdom. What we want to gather from the end of chapter 8 and chapter 9 is that life is not formulaic. Life is not formulaic. We cannot necessarily control life. Yes, that there are things that you can control. We can study for the test, we can work hard, we can learn lessons. To summarize it as best I can in preparation for diving in, we do not discover that we are accepted by God based upon external measures, but by an internal peace and joy that abound through enjoying His grace. We do not discover whether we're accepted by God based upon external measures, but by an internal joy and peace that result from enjoying God's grace. As we start our approach and we have limited time for our our study, we first want to notice from verses 16 and 17 of chapter 8 and verse 1 of chapter 9 that we must rest in the hands of a sovereign God. We must rest in in the hands of a sovereign God. Take a look, please, beginning at verse 16 of chapter 8. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out, Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Study as you will, investigate as you will, look at life, observe life, live life, uh, try various channels, and you'll find you cannot control the way things work. You you might think you have the, the, the market cornered on wisdom, and then you find that life will smack you in the face. You and I will never come to the point where we know exactly how everything will work if we make X, Y, and Z move. It doesn't work. There's more to life than formulaic living. Get to chapter 9 and verse 1. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. They're in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both before him. So as we try to work through this in as short order as possible, in verses 16 and 17, we notice this. Investigation reveals that life cannot be reduced to a formula. In verse 1 of chapter 9, all things are in the hands of God. Now he uses the positive. The righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. That is not to say that the 
unrighteous and the unwise and their deeds are not in the hands of God. It's just he's, he's speaking on one end of the spectrum. God has everything under his care. And I want to, to see that from the book of Job. You're in Ecclesiastes. You're going to take a left. Go through um, Proverbs, Psalms, and Job. And if you want to cheat, you can go to page 424 of one of our church Bibles. Job chapter 12. God has everything under his care. This is conveyed numerous times in Scripture. I try to use different passages to demonstrate it when we talk about it so that it's not as though I'm picking a favorite. The Bible is, is filled with passages discussing and proclaiming the sovereign care of God over all things. In Job 12, beginning in verse 7, here's Job pondering. He says, but ask the beasts and they will teach you. The birds of the heavens, and they will tell you. Or the bushes of the earth, and they will teach you. And the fish of the sea will declare it to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of God has done this? In His hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. God has everything. He has the whole world you're not going to help me. Are you serious? He's got the whole world in his hand. You know this one. This is the truth. Uh, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon, as he's pondering life, as he's pondering the trying to control life and understand life and, and get as much out of life as he can, he understands. And he says, listen, you can't figure it all out. God controls all things. God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and God sends rain on the just and the unjust, says the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. As you get to the end of chapter 9, verse 1, there's this very interesting phraseology, and it's, it's, it's tough sledding, I will admit, but it's very important to understand. If you don't understand what he's saying at the end of verse 1, you won't understand what comes next. So keep this in mind. As we look at the end of chapter 9 and verse 1, Here's what we will summarize it with. We can't tell, we can't tell, based upon blessings and troubles, who it is that God accepts or rejects. We can't tell by external measures who it is that God accepts and God rejects. Look at the end of verse 9, excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 9. Whether it is love, acceptance, or hate, not acceptance or rejection, man does not know, both are before him. The New King James phrases it this way, and I think it helps us a little bit. People know neither love nor hatred by anything they see before them. That is a little bit more helpful to understand what he's driving at. People know neither love nor hatred by what they see before them. So, in other words, the things that we experience, the things we see, the things we touch, the things we feel, don't tell us whether God accepts a person or not. In other words, the guy in the big house with the big car and the big bank account and, and, and all the, the blessings is not necessarily the one that God is putting his stamp of approval on. And the guy on the street corner with the sign, that is not... That is not a demonstration that this man has been rejected by God. That is not how you tell. We'll see that unfold a little bit more as we proceed forward. Keep this in mind as we proceed, and particularly 
when we get to verse 7. So, chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, chapter 9, verse 1, rest in the hands of a sovereign God. Rest in the hands of a sovereign God. As you move into verses 2 and following, what we want to do is realize the finite nature of man. Realize the finite nature of man. Look at verses 2 through 6. It is the same for how many? All. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked. Okay, stop right there. What is the only same event that happens to everybody? Everyone dies. Whether you had a big house or not, or whether you had no house or not, everybody dies. External measures fail the test Because ultimately, everyone dies, and you can't take what you accumulated with you. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice, as the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. You're all going to die externalism doesn't tell the story. You don't figure it out by looking at how a person's life turns out. Verse 3, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. After that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with the living has hope for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no more reward for their memory of them. The memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have all perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. All right, so in verses 2 and 3, we see man's fate. Man's fate, everyone dies, whether we're righteous or wicked, whether we do the right things or do the wrong things, whether we offer sacrifice, don't offer sacrifice, whether we take Good oaths or shun to take good oaths, whether we make oaths that are wrong or refuse to make oaths that are wrong, the the, the point is there's an end date. Each one of us has it. As you move into the end of verse 3, it's man's sinful nature. Look what it says. This is is, uh, telling of human nature. The hearts of the children of man are what? Full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. After that, they go to the dead. He's letting us know of something the Bible attests to from Genesis to Revelation. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The heart of man is desperate or uh, is, is deceitful above all things and desperately sick or wicked. Who can understand it? Who can know it? These are, these are Bible truths. Romans 3.23, Jeremiah 17.9, but it's all over the pages of Scripture. Man's sinful nature. We're talking about the finite nature of man over against the sovereignty of God. Rest in the sovereign hand of God. Realize the finite, the temporary, the non-controllable, the, the, the temporary element, the finite nature of man. Man has a fate of death, and man is filled with With wickedness, he's a sinful nature. Man has a limited influence. That's what we see in verses 4 through 6. Limited influence. 
verse 4. But he who is joined with the living, he that's still alive, has hope. Why? For a living dog, a living scavenger, is better than a dead lion, the king of the beasts. A scavenger dog is better than a king of the beasts. Why? Because the dead lion can do what? Nothing. The scavenging dog can do something. He can scavenge. He can eat something. Now, he's not talking about the lap dogs, um, though we have one. It's fun. Kids love it. I like it. My wife likes it. It's great. Little dog. Living dog, better than a dead lion. Why? Because there's, there's still opportunity to influence things while we're alive. While we're alive, we can impact the world. Don't wait too long. Don't wait too long. Don't wait till you retire to serve the Lord. Don't wait till you retire to spend time with your kids. Too late. Don't wait. Don't wait. If you wait, the inevitable will happen. You won't be able to do anything. He that's alive has hope because you can still do something, still influence people. Verse 5, knowledge of impending death can impact us. Verse 5, for the living know that they will die. Have you been to a, a wake? Have you been to a funeral? Have you heard the eulogies? Have you heard them? Do they ever impact you? They impact me. One time I remember I was at a, a funeral and someone was talking about this man and they said, uh, he never said anything bad about anyone. And I thought, I don't know whether it's true or not. It doesn't matter whether it's true. It's what was said. And it makes this impact on you. You think, boy, I, I want to be that guy that doesn't say something bad about someone else. I don't want to be the guy that's always complaining about someone else, saying bad things about someone else, criticizing someone else. There's nothing positive about that. That guy never said anything bad about anyone. I, I like that. That was impactful to me. Or she always looked for ways to help. That makes, a, that makes a, an impression upon us. The, the opposite also. I, I was at one recently. It wasn't anyone that you know. I was doing a Navy funeral. And this girl gets up and she starts talking. And this killed me. I didn't really know my father. Oh, that's horrible. Thinking, man, my kids can't say that. But I would hate it if they, if they ever said that. That would just destroy me. I didn't really know my father. It's a terrible thing. When, when, you, when you think of it, the, the living know that they will die. And so you go to a funeral and you hear the eulogy and you think, someday I'm going to be the guy in the urn or the box. It's going to be me. What are they going to say? What are they going to say? While you're alive, you can think about this. You see your impending end, and you can say, all right, while I'm alive, I can still have influence. I can still impact my kids. I can still impact my neighbor. I can impact the church. I can impact the world while I have life. I have a finite nature, but while I'm alive, I can still do something. Looking a little further into chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 5, a dead person can no longer accomplish work or receive its reward. Look what he says in, in uh, verse 5. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no more reward. They have no more reward. It's over. Nothing left. The world forgets those who die. Look at the end of ver the verse. For the memory of them is forgotten. The memory of them is forgotten. 
So I want to ask you a question. Ready? Don't answer it out loud. Don't give it away to your neighbor. Who invented the light bulb? No, it was not Groot or his brother uh, Grew or his brother Drew from Despicable Me. Who is it? Who was it? Did you think Thomas Edison? Is that the first thing, name that came to mind? Okay, that's because we forgot about another guy whose name is Joseph Swan, who in the UK developed the incandescent light bulb and patented it 10 years before Thomas Edison did. Did you know that? I didn't expect you to know it. He's another guy, another example that people forget. They forget about this guy. He did something pretty incredible. That's pretty impressive. I could not invent a light bulb. He did, and nobody, very, very few people remember him. That's just part. While you're alive, you have influence, but once you're gone, influence, for the most part, ceases. No more influence. Verse 6. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished and forever they have no more share or partnership in all that is done under the sun. The good, the bad, and the ugly are history. The good, the bad, and the ugly are history. This doesn't mean that there's absolutely no lasting impact. Negatively, you've maybe seen a show where someone did something terrible and then finally they're dead and someone looks over to the offended victim and they say, he's dead, he can't hurt you anymore. You've seen, you've seen something like that. He can't hurt you anymore. Well, the damage might already be done, right? So like that may last still. And opposite of that, conversely, there are people that in our lifetime make an indelible impression on us and their, their influence lasts. But the point that Solomon is making is not that there's no residual of a person's life. It's that once they die, their influence is done. They can't do anything more. They can't add to their influence. Man is finite. His nature is finite. Uh, the dead know nothing in verse 5. They accomplish nothing in verse 6. And they are forgotten in verse 7. Rest in the hands of a sovereign God. He's the one that controls the works upon the earth. He's the one that has the whole world in his hands. Man's nature is finite. We will all die. We are filled with sin, and our influence is limited. As we come to verses 7 through 10, which is where we will conclude for this morning, we are given direct orders. Direct orders. Solomon has not been barking out orders in the book of Ecclesiastes. He has mostly been just telling us what he has observed, the way life works that he understands, and the things that don't work in accordance to his understanding, and the vanity of life. He's just been talking and musing. And here, he starts to bark out some orders. And here's the, here's the synopsis of that for a heading. Revel in the opportunities at hand. Revel, enjoy, rejoice, celebrate, imbibe, enjoy the opportunities at hand. Verse 7, go, that's a command. Eat, that's a command. I like that one. Eat your bread with joy and drink, that's a command. Your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. 
Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy, that's a command, life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, temporary life, transient life, uncontrollable life that he has given you under the sun. Because that, enjoying your wife, enjoying food, enjoying celebration, that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, the grave to which you're going. You're going to die. Your life will end. Don't blow it. Don't waste it. Don't squander it. Don't whistle it away. Don't spit it to the side. There's so much in life that God graciously grants to us. Solomon has already laid a foundation for what he's about to say here. Scholars or commentators call these the joy or enjoyment passages. In chapter 2, he says this, This also I saw, the joy, is from the hand of God. That's chapter 2 and verse 24. I wrote 4. Miss typo. 224 is where you'll find that. Chapter 5 and verse 19. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. Verse 20. For he will not much remember the days of his life. He won't remember all the things that have happened. Why? Because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Stop uh, wishing for yesteryear. Enjoy what God gives you now. And he's already prepared us for this in chapter 8 and verse 15, which we read recently. Verse 15 says, And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Solomon gives us a series of commands. It's a call to action. Go. Go and do what, Solomon? Eat. Go and eat your bread with joy. I like Solomon. I want to give him a big hug. Drink your wine with a merry heart. Why? Why is that? And here's where we come back to the end of verse 1. That confusing, weird section where he says that, that love and hate are before us. You can't figure things out by seeing what's in before you, whether it's good or bad, whether, whether you think this, is, this says I'm, I'm doing great, so now I have these blessings, or I'm doing poorly, so I'm not experiencing these blessings. He says this, Go, eat your bread with joy and drink wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. This is not, this is not a commendation to go and sin and say your sin is okay. That is not what he's saying. He's saying we do not know if we are accepted by God or rejected simply by observing whether we're experiencing physical blessing or trouble. God has already approved what you do. Approved. What does he mean, approved what you do? Well, the word is used twice um, in a short section in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 40 and verse 2, listen to what, what Isaiah writes. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, is pardoned is the word. God has already accepted you. God has already approved of your work. He's not saying that your sin is okay. He's talking about pardon here. In chapter 42, Isaiah 42 and verse 1, God again is speaking through Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my heart soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. Uh, He will 
bring forth justice to the nations. The word delights, my soul delights, is the word here. God delights in those whom he's pardoned. To think of it in a New Testament concept, I want to just draw your attention, and you can look at it later, to Galatians chapter 2. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 6, the, the passage essentially said that God shows personal favoritism toward no one. Another translation is that with God there is no partiality. And I really like how the King James phrases it. It really brings it, brings it out. It's, it's like a, a, a word picture. God accepteth no man's person. God accepts no man's person. God is not personally favoriting someone. There's something more. Why is God accepting or approving of what we do? It's, it's not that he's accepting of sin. This is no doubt an unrefined or undeveloped reference toward justification. It's no doubt a reference to the justifying nature of God. He just doesn't develop it. It's such a relief to Solomon to know that he has a standing that is, that is okay before the Lord and knows that it will end well for the children of God, the people of God. It's so much of a benefit, he says in verse 8, you should go and get ready for a party. That's what he said. Put on your white clothing and anoint your head. Make sure you don't go to that party shabby and stinky. Go cleaned up, smelling great. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Not only is he rejoicing in God's acceptance of him, that he's willing to eat his bread with joy and drink his wine with a merry heart, that he's going to get himself dressed up for a party, he issues this command, enjoy life, enjoy the turmoil, enjoy the temporary nature of life, enjoy all the twists and turns. How? Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, in verse 9, that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Enjoy the life, uh, excuse me, enjoy the love of your life, your wife. God has granted her to you as a blessing in an uncertain and troubled world. God wants us to love our wives. You can see that reiterated in Ephesians chapter 5, Colossians chapter 3, and elsewhere. God wants us to enjoy our wives. Men, someday it will be too late. Slow down. Slow down. Who's going to care how much is left in your 401k when you have that massive heart attack. Well, your wife will care what's left in there, I'm sure, but, but that's not the point. Come on now, that's not the point. Enjoy your wife while there's still time. Enjoyment with our spouse helps to offset the vanity of life. Our lives are entrusted to us by God. I think you can see that in verse 9, those statements. Just mull it over later. As we transition into verse 10, I'm going to read verse 10, and I'm going to share with you a statement from Michael Eaton just to kind of get us to wrap toward an end. Verse 10, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought 
or knowledge or wisdom and shield to which you are going. Michael Eaton writes, the series of encouragements leads naturally to this one. For contentment, comfort, and companionship enable a man to throw himself into the tasks of life with energy and confidence. So the enjoyment prepares us to work more. Okay, that's the idea. We don't have time for much more development. We're going to make some applications and some conclusions now. So bear with me just for a moment. This is vitally important that we consider how this fleshes out. Number one, application. God holds all of life in his grasp. Trust him. Number two, we will all die. Make an impact while you live. Number three, God has given gracious gifts. Enjoy them. Number four, there is work to do. Work hard at what God has entrusted to you. You might summarize it this way. Think hard. Work hard. Play hard. Trust God. A major issue is touched upon in these verses. Again, it's not developed. He kind of leaves us hanging. Who will be accepted by God? Who is pleasing to him? Ready? Bad news first. Not you and not me. Whether you sacrifice or don't, whether you vow or don't, whether you do good or don't, that is not where you find your acceptance with God. You will never find through your efforts and energies and devotion to make yourself acceptable to God. Why? Because we do not meet God's standard of righteousness. We do not meet God's standard of righteousness. But God was and is pleased with His Son, Jesus Christ. God was and is pleased with His Son, Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus met every standard of righteousness. Every standard of righteousness Jesus met. Jesus, the accepted, perfect pleasing son laid his life down as a substitute for our sin. He paid the full weight of my failure to meet God's righteous standard. God, through the gracious work of Jesus Christ, is willing to declare as righteous all those who come to him in faith, trusting Jesus Christ. So I have to ask you a question. Do you stand justified before God? Has God declared you righteous? Has God declared that you are accepted by Him? Pleasing to Him? To the Colossians, one of the ways that God talks to them through the Apostle Paul is, you are holy and loved. Colossians 3.12. Look it up later. You are holy and loved. This is unrefined people. People that are still in their flesh, in their bodies, still would sin occasionally, like I sin occasionally, and like you sin occasionally, and yet they're declared as holy and loved. Why? Because they are in Christ 
Jesus? Are you in Christ Jesus? If so, if you've been declared righteous, do not look at the external measurements of blessing or trouble to ascertain whether God has accepted or rejected you, whether God loves you or hates you. That's not the measure. The measure is different. You must stand confidently before the Lord. And when you stand confidently before the Lord because you know you are in Christ and accepted by God, you can eat and drink and be merry. You can enjoy your family and you can work hard at your tasks knowing that someday I'm going to die and I'll be with God, which is far better. This is the gospel in the midst of the chaotic world that Solomon describes that seems so pessimistic, unless you see what he's actually saying. We can be confident before the Lord. You can be confident before the Lord and enjoy this vain life that's been entrusted to you under the sun, knowing that better things are coming. Real life is coming. Enjoyment to the fullest is coming. So enjoy some temporary pleasures here now, knowing that from the hand of the Lord, have that joy and peace inside of you that comes from confidence in the Lord. Stop looking at externals to figure out whether God loves you. He's already told you. It's already done. He loves you. He sent his son to die, to die in your place. He loves you. Trust him. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Please help us to rejoice in your gracious gifts, to, in, to rejoice in the greatest gift, the gift of your son how you've declared believers, those that trust you, that have turned from their sin and turned to Christ, you've declared us as righteous, accepted, pleasing, and loved. You're so good. Help us to rejoice in you. In Jesus' name.